Okay, today's topic concerns the global economy, globalization, uh, the possibility of deglobalization, the critique of the world economy and globalization. In short, uh, the question of whether uh, the United States and the rest of the world are in a situation of sink or swim, whether the situation is fair or unfair, and what we should do about it. It's the culmination of the last two lectures uh, we had on this tech from this textbook, dealing primarily with um, micro and macro economic problems, and now we're putting the pieces together. Uh, I wish I had my marker. I brought some this morning, but let's see if this works. Essentially, globalization. Excellent. Who can give me a definition? Globalization. <coughs> It would be an increase in the integration of uh, nations around the world in terms of trade. And, uh, That's exactly right. Primarily, let's say, of economics. Out of economics, there's sort of two parts of the trade and investment. But to make this system work, it needs some support structures, so we also speak of political integration, not just economic, as part of the globalization process. So we think of trade organizations specifically, like the World Trade Organization, the European Union. We think of um, other international organizations that take up economic and political questions, like the United Nations, again, the European Union. What's the problem? Just what I said. Integration of state power by of economic, which is trade and investment. Okay, I'm sorry, this is not, I apologize. Um, and then political structures that support those rules, try to get compliance with the agreements, try to enforce the agreements when there's not compliance. There's also social and cultural consequences of globalization. Again, they can be viewed positively or negatively, uh, but you know, people are connected to the internet, People get um, Hollywood movies. Hollywood makes, the chapter says, twice as much profit on overseas sales of movies as they make, than they make in the United States. Uh, English is becoming a, a language of world business, which is good for us. And, uh, but there's also some feedback from, and its worst moments is terrorism, when terrorists you know, object to the social, cultural colonization or conquest of the world with American values which many groups in the world, particularly traditional societies, regard as corrupt, unhappy, neurotic, consumerist, extravagant, self-indulgent, neurotic, um, and even worse, exploitative, domina domineering, murderous, torturous, etc. So just as economic change throughout world history has always had tremendously violent events because of the disruptions, the political conflicts, the sense of deprivation, greed, avarice, and stupidity. The world economy's integration, uh, whether it's good or bad, is associated with a lot of violent and other forms of conflict, some of which is resolved quasi-democratically through negotiations, through deliberative processes and through adjudicatory processes, such as the World Trade Organization's court. Um, but some of it may be resolved in 
uh, or not resolved by 9-11, and other threats that, you know, who knows what could that, where that's going, whether the terrorists are being defeated or whether they're just waiting to get a suitcase bomb and drop it. The Soviets made suitcase nuclear weapons during the Cold War that presumably are all accounted for, but who knows? So what we have is increasing integration of the world economy uh, and, to some extent, social, political integration through our um, daily lives, through our business context, through travel, through looking on the internet, through calling on cell phones. Possibly 10 to 20 years from now, you know, a phone call, the opposite side of the world will just be free. You just do it on the internet through Skype or who knows what. Uh, some things are getting a whole lot cheaper, but as we get closer, we may not be friendlier. Maybe we will be. It's hard to know. Um, now, going back in time, we can say, as the chapter argues, that globalization has accelerated, but it's been a process going back to ancient Greece and ancient Rome. Rome traded not just in the greater Mediterranean basin, it traded in parts of Africa. Silk from China was considered a great luxury in the Roman Empire, but that shows there was trade with China of some sort going back to the Roman Empire. The mercantile period, mercantilism, uh, was a philosophy in the Middle Ages uh, that was different from the current one. Mercantilism was the target of criticism of Adam Smith in 1776 in The Wealth of Nations and David Ricardo's liberal theory of free trade which undergirds, as the chapter tells us, all of the movement since World War II to integrate and globalize the world economy. On the one hand, mercantilism was the philosophy that your country, presumably as an imperial power, represented by imperial Roman and Greece, and the more recent times, imperial Netherlands, imperial Portugal and Spain, uh, that you will monopolize trade with your colonies and uh, accumulate wealth in those days, it started off with silver, and later on with sugar, spices, these kinds of traded goods were the prized items. And the more you had of it, the more wealth and power your country had. It's not a philosophy either of everybody inside your trade zone equally benefiting, because obviously these imperial empires were uh, characterized by keeping the colonized peoples down, or as they say, um, uh, barefoot, dumb, and pregnant. Barefoot, poor, dumb means not getting educated, and pregnant means you know, producing soldiers for us by having lots of babies. Um, so if you were a, a colonial subject of Spain and the Philippines or South America, you know, you may or may not have a slightly st higher standard of living. You, if you had a job, it might be in a mine in South America or a sugar plantation on a hacienda in the Philippines, uh, and you might might have slightly more money than the people that were doing <coughs> subsistence agriculture, but you were not free. If you dared revolt, you know, you would be killed. And when the United States took over the War of Independence of the Philippines against Spain in the Spanish-American War of 1898, uh, when we interceded, um, we faced a counterinsurgency, uh, insurgency for which we imposed a counterinsurgency and killed 200,000 Filipinos. So the United States was every much as brutal in its history of colonialism as some of the other powers were in theirs. Now, the liberal philosophy 
that Ricardo embraced in the 19th century was designed to not only make you powerful and looked at power in a liberal absolute way, meaning that everybody would be more powerful. Um, this wasn't Ricardo's theory, but uh, Kant was to argue in the same century that if all, if all the countries converted to liberal states, respecting the rule of law and promoting free trade, you would create a perpetual peace. You wouldn't need to be the most powerful. And it wouldn't matter that other governments got powers, more powers, you got more power, because power was not valued as a relative advantage, but rather an absolute gain to benefit everyone. Ricardo's theory <coughs> was based on this notion of comparative advantage. Uh, who can remember from the reading what examples he gave? Comparative advantage. No one read the chapter? Yes. Well, uh, it talks about how China, for example, has cheap labor and uh, is able to break unions and, and teach children. Ricardo's from the 19th century. Oh, I thought this was a, I'm sorry, a comment on Ricardo, who's read the chapter? Nobody? That's not good, but not surprising, because that's the way this university works. Please do the reading. Please do the reading. Uh, otherwise, I'm just repeating what you could do yourself, and then we could have discussions about the reading if you come prepared, right? All right, well, the example he gave was uh, Britain and, and Portugal. Portugal is a nice environment for growing grapes, make wine. Uh, Scotland had sheep and lamb, uh, so they could make wool and mutton. And the idea was that each country had an environment more hospitable for these kinds of agricultural products than the other. He wasn't even talking about the industrialization process involving factories but just the climate is better for grapes in Portugal and better for sheep in Britain. So Britain should make mutton, as they call lamb, uh, to eat, and also uh, wool from sheepskin. And uh, they, Spain should make grapes, and uh, Portugal, Greece, whatever, use the word the example. Portugal should make free, uh, grapes and wine uh, and trade, and then each country will have a higher standard of living at cheaper prices and better quality goods. It kind of assumes what? More is better, right? Critics of globalization, and we'll talk about many types of critiques of globalization, but one of the most profound one is we should just have a simpler lifestyle. We shouldn't work. More is not better. More is less. More is being obsessed with accumulation. Happiness doesn't come from more. And some of the reaction to globalization that you might see from Islamic terrorists is built on this idea that American and Western societies don't appear to have, be any happier for having more. You know, you're, you're, you're in debt, you don't get along with your spouse, you commit adultery, you commit fornication, sodomy, all these other terrible sins that traditional societies find abhorrent and don't, you know, certainly glamorize in movies. Um, that's one kind of critique. And you know, in some sense, one can reply that that's all well and good, but if you act how, look at how Americans behave, they behave like they want more. So you're telling Americans that they can't have what they want, therefore you're encroaching on their freedom. 
The critique would say you've all been brainwashed. If you grew up in another country, you'd like what that country's values are. And it's just a matter of your upbringing and socialization. And if you grew up in a much more simple society that valued friendship, uh, compassion, kindness, spending time with people rather than on Facebook, you wouldn't worry about you know, who's got the most text messages this month. Uh, I lose that battle every year. Last month I had four text messages and my son had 14,000. Um, I didn't believe it till I throw it on the bill. I don't know why they tell me we have unlimited, but um, you know, I, get, I don't know what else you do with your time. You can send that many text messages in one month. How, how many text messages do you guys send per month? In the thousands? But over a thousand? Maybe. Yeah? Maybe. Okay, so that's 300 a day? No. Well, let's see, 30 times 10 would be 300. So 10 times 2. Yeah, so 37, 35 a day would get you over a thousand. 35 a day? Oh, so in other words, oh, you send it. In other words, it's not like it's one message and you're on instant messaging where you go back and forth. It's like you send a text, you get a text. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why. Oh, so it could be only two people a day. Yeah. And each text message could be one word. Yeah. Or especially if you like mess up, or if you mess up and then you have to correct it later. Yeah. Or like mm -hmm. some days I'll say something. I didn't mean to say every hour. Yeah. Yeah. See where I try to make it very perfect before I send it out. <laughs> <laughs> we do it. I can't. While doing six other things. So yeah. While driving. I've noticed. Yeah. No. Yeah. No, that's not a good thing. <laughs> Yeah, well, in any event, um, I'm not, I don't think, you know, texting is, is a metaphor, I suppose, for acquisitiveness, right? Um, so the United States consumes more than it produces. Therefore, it's always in debt. Therefore, its economy is going downhill. Because almost every year of my adult life, we've had a massive trade deficit. And we spend the deficit for which we borrow from other countries to consume. It's not like borrowing for a house or a car, which is, can be productive, allows you to live and work, or a company borrowing in order to finance capital improvements that make increased output. So one of the big crises of our globalization, call it dilemma, is the fact that uh, in the United States in particular, we consume and we consume and we consume. And the average American has $10,000 in credit card debt. And you're a little bit younger, maybe you haven't gotten there yet. Um, but you know what most countries consider to be luxuries, we consider necessity. So for example, we already went over how many cell phones there are in this class. Um, and that's I was told that was a necessity. Um, we spend more money on cell usage than any other uh, country in the world, and we, we, use, we consume more data uh, in a variety of ways on our phones, 
Um, and people who have these smartphones in particular feel that they're absolutely necessary, right? Japan spends has higher rates, but they don't consume nearly as much data as we do. Their rates per data unit is higher. We ha we consume six or ten times more data. Yes. It's true that Japan does use their cell phones more in terms of time. They read books on their cell phones. We don't read anything, right? Well, I've been in Europe and I paid for my meals with a credit card, but it's interesting, the waiter or waitress takes the little machine to your table and, and slide, it's got like a wireless thing. And you do it right. Like these new cell phone payment systems. But, uh, this is what done with your credit card. I guess you don't need a credit card if you've got an iPhone, right? You just pay with your iPhone? And now that we know that the cell phones know everywhere you've gone, because that GPS in your cell phone is telling people where you are 24-7. Big Brother is watching. Why would the cell phones be doing this? Because they want to tell the advertisers where you go and where you spend your money. So they know what advertisements to give you. And they also give the information, because all ISPs have been doing this, to the CIA and the FBI, because they want to make sure that, you know, t that you're not a terrorist. I suppose you could say, well, if I'm not a terrorist, I've got nothing to worry about. But where does this end? You know, are you being tape recorded 24-7? They would be very bored of listening to my tape recording. Right? <laughs> yeah. Well, this guy doesn't get out. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and uh, anyway, uh, so you know the, the, the situation with globalization and trying to evaluate it first of all is it positive or negative, right? So we see that the volume of world trade has grown massively over the last forty years. The introduction of the Bretton Woods system, first with the World Bank and the IMF, and more recently uh, with the uh, GATT. General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, followed by the WTO, the World Trade Organization. These Bretton Woods institutions were named because in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire in 1946, they created them. Originally, there was a gold standard, $35 an ounce. I remember it well. All countries were pegged to the dollar. And the problem was when the dollar became less valuable because we ran our first trade deficits in the early 1970s, it was costing the U.S. Treasury a whole lot more dollars um, than it was because more people wanted, you know, you had to give up the money. So every time someone brought over an ounce of gold, we had to pay out $35. Or every time they got $35, which was worth less, we had to give out more and more gold. We were losing all our gold. Fort Knox was becoming a closet. So Richard Nixon introduced floating exchange rates. He says, and he also said, we're all Keynesians now, which was an interesting quote from Nixon. But what that meant was that no longer we'll be losing our gold, but now you can invest in gold. If you thought the dollar was going downhill, buy gold, buy silver, buy some hard, hard metal. As the dollar depreciates in value, you'll get more dollars back for your ounce of gold or silver. 
not especially productive investment, but it's free market. So if you think the dollar is going to continue to go down as it has for the last few years, buy, buy metals as an investment. It's gambling, of course. The dollar gets stronger, you'll lose money. But if you study politics, you can become a multi-billionaire. That's what George Soros got rich. Became a multi-billionaire and then gave most of it away. He's a great philanthropist. By gambling on foreign currencies, by gambling specifically on currencies that he thought were going downhill. And he would make two or three billion dollar bets. And if all, everything worked out, that government would end up paying seven billion dollars to George Soros, which led to a lot of conspiracy theories because he was Jewish is Jewish, he's still alive, and um, also he's an American. Although he's American by citizenship, he was born in Hungary and first escaped the Nazis and then later the communists before he came to the United States via England where he studied at uh, the London School of Economics. Floating exchange rates is a problem because with fixed exchange rates, you, all, you don't have an exchange rate risk on your investment. So if you build a factory in a country and you want to make profits in the future with floating exchange rates, if the dollar depreciates, you get less dollars back for the money you make in that country. If the dollar appreciates, you actually make more. But it is a risk, which means that uh, you've got the unexpected. And when things go unpredictably bad, then you have a terrible cash problem. Now, if you have a long-term view, as few companies do, because they always focused on quarterly returns to their stockholders, uh, if you have a long-term view, it doesn't matter, because over time, these things even out. But if you have to worry about these things, then you've got to spend money, like 4 or 5% of, of your investment, on forward contracts to, get, to guarantee a fixed exchange rate in the future for whatever amount of money you make the contract for in the future. So the world economy has been on floating exchange rates since around 1973-74, whenever that summer was, when I remember Nixon introduced floating exchange rates. Um, but the world economy's growth has not been even. Uh, the wealthier countries in the world, like Europe and the United States, have done pretty well, 4 or 5% economic growth in real terms in the good years. 2 or 3% in the bad years, and in economic crashes like 2008, catastrophe. The world economy decreased somewhere, depending on the chapter's estimate, between 25 and 33% in one year, which is a faster decrease in world trade than even in the Great Depression. In one year? In one year. Well, 2008 was only three years ago. Do you remember it? <laughs> Um, and while Wall Street is doing fine now, housing prices are still dropping, still dropping. Mm -hmm. And unemployment has dropped a little bit from 10 to 9, a little bit above 9. It used to be 4. In fact, at one point in the early 2000s, it was in, in the threes, which economists said was too low on the argument that you need some, un some unemployment to scare people to work harder. Because if you can always get another job, then you start acting up at work and calling your boss names and, and stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, I never thought I'd live to see the day when they said unemployment is too low. But they did say that. It didn't last very long. We, then we had the Wall Street crash. The bubbles 
the crash of the high-tech bubble. The previous bubble wasn't real estate, it was in high-tech stocks. I'll never forget, I, I actually bought Corning Glass, which makes fiber optic cables, which is with the way they thought they were gonna transmit fiber optic cables, all of this internet stuff. Everything's done through satellites now. But and my, my 25 or $35 Corning purchase, one of the few I ever bought in my life, because I had so little money, went up to 900. So I was busy with work trying to make tenure, and one day it was down to three. And now it's been back up to 25, about $10 a share less than I paid for it 12 years later. So I'm losing big time in the long term. But what I really lost was not buying at the peak. But of course, when, when you're in the middle of a bubble, you just think everything's going to go up and the internet's going to explode. Amazon was, had this enormous price and it never even made a profit. I guess Facebook and Google made profits. So, and certainly uh, Microsoft has made profits. But it's hard to understand how I couldn't see, how none of us could see, either in the internet bubble or the real estate bubble or the tulip bubble in the Netherlands 500 years ago, as we talked about last week, that all good things come to an end. And there are fundamental laws of economics. And you know, if, you're, if the price is at historical high and there's no productivity to back it up, like you're not, tulips haven't got, either demand has really gotten higher for tulips or it's all built on a house of cards. The real estate industry was built on a house of cards. Why was it built on a house of cards? Because there was all this cheap money based on false leveraging. Either banks had so much dollars from our trade deficit, foreign banks, that they lent money to re, for real estate to, in their local American branches or through American banks, so that mortgages were dirt cheap because of the excess in capital, that is dollars deposited in bank accounts, or they created false sense of security where there would never be any crash because we had secured securitized CDOs, collateralized debt obligations, which were those securities we talked about last week that pulled together junk mortgages, otherwise known as uh, subprime loans. The internet was based on a house of cards because they, everyone thought, oh, this is a new technological shift, which it was. You know, the idea that you could do e-commerce, the idea that you get knowledge everywhere, but you know what? It wasn't producing profit. Why? Because you can't charge that much for ads. How much can you charge for internet ads? Do people really look at the ads on the internet? See, the nice thing before you had all these remote controls and you push all the I had a cable box where you push the buttons and flip the numbers, now you flip the numbers. But nobody watches commercials anymore on TV. So they don't advertise on TV. They don't advertise in newspapers because no one buys newspapers. You get them for free out here. You can get your USA Today and reading about the sort of things that USA Today puts on the headlines, like today's copy, take a look. I never thought I'd see the day where they publish things on the front page that I would blush saying to my mother, but that's what that's what they got to do to sell newspapers. Did anyone see today's USA Today? Was that? The dating is a polite way of putting it. Yes. I just saw the cover walking by. Right. It's about the lack of dating. Oh right, right, right. 
and what's done instead. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so what's done instead? <laughs> What'd you say? You gotta go get it? <laughs> Is it out there in Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, and the point of this, of course, is that the globalization is rapid change, but it's not all necessarily better. And it's definitely not better for every different industry and every different country. So who are the big winners? For the first 40 years after World War II, when reducing tariffs, duties, and quotas, it was East Asia. First Japan, then Singapore, Hong Kong, South Korea, and Taiwan, followed by Indonesia. And now who? China. China. 10% plus every year except after 2008, when it only went down to 6% real growth, when the rest of the world is going down 33, 35, 50%. Iceland, Latvia, and Ireland, the entire economy's gone belly up. Ireland also on a house of cards on real estate, and banking crises in Iceland and Latvia. Never knew that Iceland was a country, did you? Of course you did. What's the capital? Nobody knows the capital of Iceland? Reykjavik. Reykjavik. Next time you get stuck on an airline that's hijacked, you may end up flying there instead of to Boston in Europe. As opposed to Greenland, which is a colony of? That's true. What is Greenland a colony of? Don't they tell you anything in geography? Um, Ireland. No, it wasn't Ireland. Denmark. I want to make you happy. Are you Irish? No. But you're wearing green. I wouldn't want to green. Except on St. Patrick's Day? No, I would. I actually had so much green on earlier. I was embarrassed. <laughs> I didn't know it was St. Patrick's Day. My teacher came up to me and said, this is St. Patrick's Day, and I said, oh no, I don't drink, I'm not Irish, but I was wearing all this green. It was embarrassing. <laughs> so the biggest winners were China and East Asia. What's another big winner these days lately from globalization? India. What's that? India. India, that's right. India is not far behind China. And who else? Turkey. Turkey's growing at 7 or 8% per year. So it's not just East Asians. Uh, and Europe and the United States, globalization took us up and it, it took us down. Or we took Europe down with us. Uh, but generally, we've benefited. Uh, the United States government, looking after its multinational companies, have gone abroad uh, and seeing its future in the health and welfare multinational corporations have embraced Ricardo's theory from the 19th century. But critics, most especially Marxist critics, but also just plain old-fashioned people with eyes say, what I see is Africa and the Middle East getting poorer. As far as regions are concerned, it's clearly the North sucking off the wealth from the South. The South is getting poorer. The North is getting richer. And inside the North, and I'm using these terms metaphorically, because the North does not include, every country in the North of the equator would include the whole Middle East, which is poor. 
and New Zealand and Australia are south of the equator and they're rich. So metaphorically, the North is exploiting the South from this critical perspective. Um, but you could say that it depends on the government and its policy and that if you could have the right kind of policy, you too, like India, can go from state socialism, which is what they had for 35 years after independence in 1947, to when they changed their policy in the early 1990s and without any loss of step, started creating entrepreneurs all over the place. And they, were, they and the Philippines went into the business of answering your phone calls via satellite. So whenever you call up to you know, find out what your, why your bill is too high, or why your computer is crashed, or any other detailed question, um, depending on the accent, you either say, how are things in Manila, or how are things uh, um, in Bangalore? But India's gone one step above the Philippines. They have Bangalore, which is Silicon Valley of the South Asian region. Pretty soon, those countries have so many billionaires that they're going to look to America for low wages and, and, and semi-skilled workers. And that's no joke. Because India's economy has taken off, and it couldn't have done it without export-led development and outsourcing for American business or American Factories, yes. They privatized. They they got rid of socialism. It was not heavy socialism, but what they used to say in India under the Fabian socialisms of the Congress Party, found founded by the founders of the Congress Party, was the heights of the economy, the strategic heights of the economy, would be belong to the state, the commanding heights. That's what it was. The commanding heights of the economy. No, they were always democratic, which was extraordinary because it was the only major poor country of the world that was completely democratic. Because the British did export parliamentary democracy, judicial independence, and a strong bureaucracy, particularly the civil and military bureaucracy. It's the exception that proves the rule that generally post-colonial states are not democratic. But it got so much of a good colonialism and so little of bad, and, and the leaders were idealistic. They had Gandhi, who was a pacifist, but then Nehru, who was the leader of the Congress Party in particular, made sure that they would be democratic. So what would you say India So India has right basically privatized these state companies and let the market play its own game. And the market works pretty well in countries with access to capital, competitive economics, um, courts that punish fraud and corruption. They have plenty of corruption there. But contracts are enforced, torts are punished, and so forth. Um, and what do, what do India and the Philippines have in common? Come on, this is not that hard. It's so obvious you can't even think of it. What do the Philippines and India have in common? They're both on They're both what, American Idol? They yeah. probably... <laughs> <laughs> They're surrounded by a lot of water. They have a lot of poverty. Yeah. <laughs> With respect to their economy, what do they have in common? <laughs> You're on to something, but that's not correct. You're on to something. So what is, who will colonize the Philippines? The British. 
Yeah. No. What did I say? 200,000 people were killed. Oh, we did. We're so what do we have in common with the British? We can flee or mergers. No, they're derived from us. Their economy is derived from us. What do we have in common with the British? What else? I'm not going to move on to get this. What do we have in common with the British? We both speak English. So why do they get a lot of investment? Because they speak English and they're educated. The Philipp one good thing we did for the Philippines was universal education. They didn't learn much education, but they did learn how to sort of read and write the way Americans learn to read or write. They all they all have access to English. The first language is not English in most cases. It might be Tagalog, it might be Cebuani, Cebuana, might be any of these languages. But they all the only language they have in common is English. Same with India. We Especially in the south of India, where you don't have a, a big strong. Could you put that away, please? Yeah. Thank you. Um, in the north of India, there's a lot of Urdu speaking, what they call Urdu in Pakistan, they call Hindi in North India, which is the same oral language but is written with Sanskrit in India and Arabic script in Pakistan. Um, so English is not quite as common in northern India as it is in southern India where there is no single common language that hundreds of millions of people speak. Urdu, Hindi, is the second most spoken language in the world after? <laughs> what is the most spoken language in the world? English. Chinese. Chinese. Oh, that's because they have a well, I don't care why. It's not. This is not like a moral question. This is just. But it's probably a, not even distributed with those who can actually speak. Can you not speak all over the world. I would love to learn. Why don't you take it? I feel like my brain can't It's hard work. It's all dumb repetition. I think English. is It's a great language. It'll guarantee you employment for life. I know. So would fluency in any language. As a colonial power, but the point is now the Filipinos, you know, they, they do call centers, right? And Indians do call centers, but the Indians do a lot more than call centers. They provide legal services. Why? Because both India and Pakistan also have the common law as British post colonies. The common law means essentially, although the case names may be different. It's basically the same principles of law and the same methodology. So if I'm a corporation like IBM, I can hire Crevasse, Swain, and Moore at $1,000 an hour per employee, per partner, probably $2,000 an hour. I don't know what they charge these days. Or I can hire a law firm that's perfectly good to do the legal work in, in Delhi for 50 bucks an hour or even 10 bucks an hour because wages are a lot lower. And with $25 an hour, the guy can live better in India than, than $2,000 an hour can in Manhattan. Because in Manhattan, you've got to live in Sutton Place. To live in Sutton Place, you get a lousy three-bedroom apartment for $25 million. And you've got a view of the 59th Street Bridge. Uh, and you can invite your friends over for fancy parties. But you know, in, in Delhi, you can have 52 employees for that kind of money. 
Now each one at five bucks a month. Um, one to shine your shoes, one to drive, one to clean your clothes, one to cook dinner, one to do the shopping, one to be the gardener. And even then, that's only six employees. So if you really want to do well, go work in India. Except by the time you get there, they're going to be coming here for cheap labor. So maybe go to some other country. Yeah. Is it true that there, um, I guess, universities that they educate those people that have those jobs are better than Harvard or on the standard of Harvard? You have the standard of Harvard right here. If you just do the reading, and I kid you not, you can get the value of a Harvard education. Absolutely. They read the same books you read or don't read. The dirty little secret is they don't read them there either. If you look, if you see the social network, did you see anybody studying in that movie? No. <laughs> <laughs> like all the Michael bosses were talking about a lot. Who was that? The, the, the two twins. Who were the twins? I forgot. The twins were the ones that sued him for the, for the ideas. Oh, but they were doing crew and they were doing their business. He constantly mentioned his studies. And I loved it. The beginning he says, uh, why do you keep saying I don't study? Because you go to Boston U. <laughs> I couldn't even hear. You know, I, I don't know how to work it on my machine to put subtitles because there's something wrong with my VCR or whatever you call it. <laughs> DVD player. <laughs> and there was so much ambient noise from the background. There was, in that movie. And there were a lot of scenes like that, and I couldn't yeah, hear what they were saying. And then I figured, like, I didn't miss anything either. We actually did that. The last you put the subtitles on? on my, yeah, we put the subtitles for the scene. And he said, it's because you go to BU. No wonder the, the guy at Facebook wanted to sue the movie. Because oh, he's, right. he's not quite that bad a jerk. Right. Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg. Who's not even 30? He only graduated six years. No, he started Facebook six years ago? Is it just six years ago? I think so, yeah, it was just six years ago, yeah. Very, yeah. like three years he was offered four billion. Six years ago. Well, in other words, he's not even 30 years old. We're 45 billion. He's 28 years old. That's a good catch. He's advancing so quickly. That's globalization. What's that? Oh, I was saying he has all that money, but he does not spend that on anything. He lives in like this itty bitty rental house. He wears like Adidas flip flops everywhere to every meeting. If you make, if you're worth forty-five billion dollars, you can do anything you want. Yeah, I mean it's just great. He's he's worth that much money, and he spends it on nothing. Well, part of it's because it's not in cash; it's in stock, and you know it wouldn't look good to sell all your stock, even not to cash in, because that implies you think the company's got no future. If he were to sell like a quarter of his stock tomorrow, the price would be half. He could sell one percent of his stock. One percent. Live like a king. Yeah, but you know, like, he, who says he doesn't live like a king? Twenty-seven million dollars. Money, you're not rich what do you mean? What do you? I don't understand. Who says he's not rich now? I'm just no, saying he can be opulent if he chose to be without threatening the value. Who says he doesn't have opulence? I mean, I, this was. He's got power. Power is the greatest aphrodisiac. Now he doesn't have to date someone from BU. He can get all the actresses. What's that? Not the girl mm -hmm. the, the role that was in the movie though. 
girlfriend in the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he got, he got dumped really in the opening scene. But, but I thought that was a setup and that they were spies. Mm -hmm. How many people think that the Al Qaeda cell looks at Facebook and says, This shows you how we want to live because this is really cool? So, how does Al Qaeda view it? Certainly, how intelligence agencies view it. Because now they just see, come protest, come protest against the Egyptian government, and now the military is in power. Says, now we know exactly who those people are. And guess where they are now? In prison. If they weren't shot in the first place. Um, now, looking at the world as large, is globalization good for the world? If you're sitting in the Middle East, which has gotten poorer, if you are sitting in New Orleans or Detroit, which has gotten much poorer, New Orleans lost 29% of its population in the last 10 years, Detroit lost 25%. Detroit tsunami wasn't Hurricane Katrina, it was just more bad. And more specifically, is it an exploitative relationship from center to periphery? So just as the North, uh, exploits the South or the peripheral parts of the world economy for cheap labor and cheap materials to make their goods uh, cheaper to produce, to have bigger profits. And even inside the United States, which after all the United States, 89% of the US economy is not dependent on exports, even though some obvious examples in the chapter represent the you know total reliance on the world economy, like Hollywood, basically, breaks even on the domestic production of its movies. It's overseas. They really like King Kong 16 and so forth. And you know, whatever, Predator 42 and whatever these remakes are. Um, and you know, machine tools is a big, a big exporting. We don't export many cars. We're the only, our car market, nobody else in the world likes our cars. They think it's junk. We don't like them either, so now they haven't stepped up because we can't afford them. Well, only Toyota's fall has been GM's rise, along with the protectionist measures we provided for them, to which I'll turn to in a second. But the chapter has two basic discussions. Will we deglobalize, and what is the net benefit or cost of globalization? So I'm asking the second question first. Is globalization a good thing, a bad thing? Depends on who, where you are in the world economy. Secondly, is it inevitable? And, or will it deglobalize with protectionist policies that will follow the, the warning of Adam Smith in 1776 in his book, The Wealth of Nations, a century before Ricardo's theory, or call it ideology, of free trade, called beggar thy neighbor. Anyone know what beggar thy neighbor means? I talked about this last week. Quite the opposite, actually, but not a bad guess. Uh, beggar thy neighbor is a policy where you put up protectionist measures uh, to protect your economy from foreign competition when things are going bad, and they do the same thing in retaliation. It becomes a vicious cycle of tit for tat. And in the Depression, the world economy shrunk by two thirds. Wow. Now, we shrank more in absolute terms, 
than Europe did because we had, we had more world trade than they did vis-a-vis uh, -vis US and Europe. So uh, Senator Smoot and Senator Hawley are blamed for World War II. Why are they blamed for World War II? Because their policies led to the collapse of the European governments, especially Germany. Okay, and how? Which led to political destabilization and led to the rise of the Nazis. And, sort of and desperate. What were the policies that led? What was the Smoot-Hawley tariff? Anyone do the reading? They were very restrictive tariffs that protected right. companies in this country, but we put tariffs on about a thousand goods. Surprise! Europe did the same thing back to us. Surprise! The world economy shrunk by two thirds. Surprise! The depression got worse rather than better. And fascism is an ideology that basically is not considered acceptable when the economy is doing well. But when any economy is doing bad, there's political space that naturally, this is what a political scientist would say, political space opens up for extremist ideologies. There's never been any fascism in world history except during world depressions. Now maybe someday there will be a fascism, but generally nationalism, fascism, the worse things are economically, the more the leaders have an incentive to blame somebody else, to scapegoat somebody else and to propose radical transformation of the political system because the previous one, i.e. democracy, is the one that got us into this hole. The book is an interesting description of the economic advisor who used to work at one of the major banks. I think it was the uh, Morgan Bank. I went to President Harding, got on his knees, and begged him to veto the Smoot-Holy tariff. Or was it Hoover, I think? Harding or Hoover, I forget which. Uh, the bill came in 1930, right, a year, a year after the crash, and Harding was such a protectionist that he signed it, or Hoover, I guess, I'm sorry. And by signing it, it is argued you, had, you put in motion this chain of events that led to World War II. Um, you know, Japan wasn't as tied to the world economy, therefore Japan's economy wasn't going down as far. But they had never been an industrial power for the 19th century. It was really fr dating from the Meiji Restoration of 1860s with Admiral Perry's visit to Tokyo Harbor. And then around the turn of the 20th century, 1905, Japan shocks the world by doing what? What happened in 1905? Nobody knows. They de defeated Russians and took lots of Russian territory. And people wondered, how could this tiny island country that no one ever heard of suddenly defeat the mighty imperial empire? And then um, they had a coup d'etat, destroyed Japanese democracy, and put in the admirals and the, the military, took over and created not quite a fascist ideology, because it was a junta, it wasn't one individual. The ideology was basically nationalist. It didn't do extreme scapegoating. They just said, the white man has colonies. Why can't we have colonies? And then, because we want colonies, and because we did atrocities in China, by the way, the Europeans never did atrocities in their colonies. The Americans killed 200,000 Filipinos. The British and the French killed a whole lot of Africans and Asians. So the f Japanese announced a co-prosperity zone. 
And then the Americans, in response, called for an embargo and forced an embargo of oil and other natural resources on Japan, which was completely energy import dependent. So from the Japanese point of view, Pearl Harbor wasn't an act of treachery, it was an act of desperation. And the claim that Pearl Harbor was uh, an imperial assault against the United States was an act of utter hypocrisy. Because the Americans had its biggest naval base and bigger airfield in the world in an Asian colony, the Philippines. So you can see perspective on world events depends on where you're coming from. The Americans always say free trade is good for everything. Why? Because we say, obviously, Smoot-Hawley tariff caused the Great Depression, which caused fascism, which caused World War II. Because World War II also took place in Asia. And there we say it was caused by Japanese treachery. And of course, Japanese Japan was negotiating with us and did the surprise attack while they were negotiating. You call that an act of treachery. But on our, on our side, we didn't say boo when the Europeans committed atrocity and colonized Asian colonies right outside Japan. And Japan was not popular in Asia. The Asian countries did not want to be colonized any more than African and Asian countries wanted to be colonized by Europeans either. And to this very day, Japan is not a very popular country in East Asia. Very unpopular in Korea, which Japan colonized. Extremely unpopular in China for the same reason. And extremely unpopular in the Philippines, where they occupied the entire country after MacArthur left, but said, I will return. You ever hear that? Yes, no, no. Heard of MacArthur? Old soldiers don't die, they just fade away. Well, you're honest anyway, I'll give you credit for that. Um, now, what is protectionism and why does it cause beggar thy neighbor policies? Who can give me a definition of protectionism? And then we'll, we'll, we'll consider examples, and then we'll consider whether it's true or not. Well, it's the idea of the government has to keep its people in a good economic status, not all over the world. And they don't care about other people, they protect other people. They react to. You're, on, you're, you're warm. Yes. It's important. Actually, he has enough first. Um, Countries impose tariffs and other barriers of trade Okay, one example, you're both right, are barriers to trade. Typically tariffs, duties, and quotas. I think tariffs and duties are basically the same thing. Could you put that away, please? Thank you. Um, Quotas are an exact fixed amount of goods permitted to come in the country. Now, we had so-called voluntary quotas with Japan back in the 80s when their car manufacturing looked to be indomitable. And we said, will you voluntarily reduce the number of cars you bring to the United States? And with a hint of a threat afterwards. So that was technically legal because Japan said it was voluntary. But we basically told them, you know, limit to whatever it was, it was a lot. I think it was even a million cars a year. Uh, but um, 
That was not considered a violation of the GATT rules. The GATT, again, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, was the World Trade Organization that became the WTO in 1995. We'll talk about that in a second. What's the second type of uh, protectionist measures? You mentioned barriers to trade. What else? <coughs> investment or stimulus investment on the part of a, a government. Yes, such as what? So, for example, the bailout of GM. Okay, so the bailout of GM is a protectionist policy. Why? Because it gives GM an advantage over foreign import companies that don't receive that benefit from their government. That's right. In fact, the whole theory of free trade is that inefficient companies should go out of business. Schumpeter wrote about a process of creative destruction. Going out of business is what makes capitalism work. Because it gets rid of inefficiency. It's, it's basically because there's a bottom line profit that if you can't make a profit, and especially if you can't get anyone to lend you money to pay your bills, you're out of business. Or at least you're bankrupt. And you can see if your creditors will make a deal with you to take 50 cents on the dollar. If they won't make a deal, you're out of business. And the court has to approve the deal and so forth. Now, in this particular example, saving GM has proven to be a miracle, just the way similar measures were provided for Chrysler with Lee Iacocca, a name you may have heard of, who was the so-called hero of America for bringing, saving Chrysler. But in fact, when the government guarantees loans, when the government gives you subsidies, uh, gives you breathing space, you're getting a favor. And you're interfering with the market, which is supposed to creatively destroy those companies that can't make a profit. And it's supposed to be merciless. I'll say one thing about businessmen in America. They may be getting rich, they may live a great lifestyle, but they have real pressure. If you work for a company, you have to be profitable if you're profitable for the firm, you're not likely to lose your job. If you're not profitable, you're likely to lose your job. Yep. Well, in the state of the economy as it is now, and I guess as it was when the bailouts were happening, would the free, you said that that was ruining the free trade. Well, um, if they were, they were the leading domestic car market or uh, companies, right? GM, Chrysler, right? I mean, Ford, I guess. They Ford used to be weak, but now it's been strong. But well, so, okay. Chrysler was not bailed out this time. Uh, well, okay, so GM. Well, if that's sort of going against the free trade system, say all of them had to be bailed out, there wouldn't be any domestic car market. So if, if all the companies are cheating in the sense of free trade and they're not just dying off as they're supposed to, what happens when all the leading companies in the country don't have to depend on like, the services and work for well, import drivers? I would say you would help somebody would build a better I know, like, is that, is that that's, sort of that's what you mean by creative destruction. Right? Well, first of all, we have foreign-owned American subsidiaries that have factories in the United States that are, that are also American companies. Now, we xenophobic culture don't consider them American companies because they're owned by Toyota or something. But in fact, the company is incorporated in one of the 50 states. And the management in the United States, I don't think is all Japanese. I don't actually know. I'm sure they have some Japanese in charge, but you know there's plenty of managerial positions there in addition to union positions uh, held by Americans. Uh, the, the theory of free trade is that you will use your resources more efficiently. Japan is better at making cars. 
Uh, and it wasn't stupidity of management, which in fact is part of the story, but rather the fact that we just don't know how to make cars as well as they do. For example, um, we produce a lot of lawyers in this country. We have as many lawyers per capita as Japan has engineers. In Washington, D.C., one out of every 25 residents of Washington, D.C., and that includes a whole lot of poor people, one out of 25 is a lawyer. If you look at the western half of Washington, D.C., I'll bet it's one in 10 or one in eight. Which do you think, they both contribute to the economy because you know lawyers write contracts, they provide justice and so forth. But who produces greater contributions to productivity, lawyers or engineers? Anybody think lawyers? Why does everyone in the United States go to law school, not to engineering school? I know we got Georgia Tech down the road, but. Oh, no, we have, it's, no, we have a, it's not easier. We have a system that rewards being a lawyer. Right, so we have many more rules and regulations. In Japan, they don't even understand because everything is done out of the basis of honor. You don't write a contract because basically if you break your honor, I'll never do business with you again. Now that works here too, but we also have contracts because that's the system we inherited from British common law. And common law. So we're not as productive as Japan is in that regard. I mean, in other regards, we are productive. We import our engineers. 75% of MIT's graduate students are foreign. And a lot of them stay. Few go back. They're going to India now because, you know, the economy is better for them than here. But. That's why we can't do global. Because go ahead. Actually, they, they can't compete with Apple anymore, but I know, Sony's cool. going downhill. And they hired an, an American but their products are made to be in CEO of country. Sony. Like I'm just saying, I'm, just, I'm trying to go back to globalization because if we don't, if, if we have like all these students, we're not going to be able to train. The argument is a short term versus long term. In the long term, Ricardo's theory of free trade is that you will put your resources in something more productive. The market will reward the companies that have the biggest profit. And that's why you will specialize. Now, to the extent that it's too costly to transport goods around the world, you have an advantage just by being local. You know, fresh food, especially these days, especially organic fresh fruit, is something that's probably never going to be replaced. In fact, we've, seen, we've been importing so much food with all kinds of chemicals overseas without health standards, with salmonella and other airborne illnesses in that kind of food. Plus, the longer the food stays you know, unrefrigerated, the more you're going to be eating something bad. If you go to my neighborhood fish market, you don't know how long that's been out on the truck. Um, you know, product, if, if we tax the true cost of gasoline, including its contribution to global warming, you double the price of gasoline and just say that extra money will go in uh, for pollution equipment to scrub the coal-fired electric power plants and the petroleum-powered plants and to be make better technology on cars to produce less carbon-based or move us over to corn more. Because right now our subsidies of corn, which is another predatory trade practice, another form of protectionism, 
just like our research and development into B-1 and B-52 and B-17 bombers produced the 747 from Boeing, which Europe said is unfair trade practices. Therefore, Europe created Airbus Industries, which lost money for 15 years before they started selling Airbus planes around the world. It's now to the point where they're probably as competitive as Boeing and Lockheed Martin Marietta, as in Marietta, Georgia. Um, but the point here is that all of these trade and tariff barriers exist the same time that they're supposed to have been eliminated by a process that will uh, make everybody better off. So for the pure theorists, the problem is get rid of these tariff barriers, whether they're tariff duty quotas, whether they're subsidies to industries like loan guarantees, whether they're subsidies for research and development like the money given to the aerospace industry, whether they're export credit subsidies where you lend money to foreign buyers to buy our exports at 25% less. So an 8% loan goes for 6%. Now we're not talking about a house, which seems like an expensive loan, right? 200 to $800,000 for a house. What does an electric uh, nuclear power plant go for? When Westinghouse builds a, a nuclear power plant overseas, the buyer is borrowing a billion dollars. That's a lot more than $200,000. And when you, we subsidize an 8% loan for 6%, that's 25% off. In a 30-year house mortgage loan, you pay about three to four times principal and interest, depending on how high the interest rate is. Interest rate is real low, like 4% these days. It wouldn't be quite so much. But if it was the levels of the late 1970s when we had 15% inflation and interest rates were 18%, you'd pay 12 times the principal and in interest. So if you just take the standard of four, $1 billion nuclear power plant goes for a total of $4 billion in interest. And we're paying, as US taxpayers, $1 billion in subsidizing the interest payments on the $1 billion loan at the total of $4 billion in interest payments that the borrower would be buying. Borrower would be paying back, rather. Is that good? It's great for the consumers overseas because we're subsidizing their consumption. It's terrible for their producers if they want to get into the nuclear energy business and they don't get that subsidy. They don't get to compete at the table. And it's bad for the American taxpayer because you're robbing Peter to pay Paul. In other words, uh, in order to save, let's say, 4,000 jobs at General Electric, we paid a billion dollars. Where if we didn't spend a billion dollars at General Electric to build one nuclear power plant, where by the way, now we don't get any of the electricity. It's all overseas. That money could have been spent on building Let's say it's a million dollars a school. That's a thousand schools. How many construction workers does it take to build a thousand schools? More than one nuclear power plant? Plus the schools stay here, they educate our children, they employ our citizens as teachers, and so you get the multiplier effect. We get zero of the multiplier effect on the export. But for every dollar that is spent, there's a multiplier effect of five because if each person is assumed to save 20%, which of course is not true, but in the old days when people used to save instead of consume by spending money on their credit card, 
um, that would mean that the multiplier effect would be five because it would be a dollar plus 80 cents plus 60 cents plus 40 cents and so forth. And the total amount of money spread to the economy for each additional dollar of spending would actually be five dollars. But we subsidize those export credits. So when someone buys a Boeing 747, they got a new line of 747s out. The XM Bank pays for, for most of it. Our subsidized price supports for agriculture like wheat also get subsidized in foreign agricultural sales through the Commodity Credit Corporation. Our foreign military sales are all subsidized. US taxes are paying for all of these subsidies just so foreigners can buy our guns our wheat and our jumbo jets and nuclear power plants and a few other big ticket items that the United States subsidized through the US Export-Import Bank. And we're sitting here like former Senator Byron Dorgan complains, we have a trade deficit, therefore there's no level playing field, therefore we have to have the US trade legislation which is designed to level the playing field by allowing no exports to the United States that have any subsidies. No mention that we subsidies. Second, it says we're going to level the playing field by making them have the same environmental protections we have. Because it's not fair. We have to have safety standards for our workers, and we have to pay for our pollution, and that raises the cost of production. Mm -hmm. Where they don't. Where they don't. Mm -hmm. Well, guess what? We didn't have any environmental protections back when we were dominating the world economy before the environmental movement of the 1970s. Secondly, these are expensive items. Third, we're effectively saying, you can't have a place in the table of economic growth because you have to live like Americans in 2011 rather than living the way Indians want to live, which they might prefer to be dirty and rich than clean and poor. You go to Vietnam, you go to North Vietnam, it's clean as can be because they have no industry. You go to South Vietnam, which is now the same country, but Southern Vietnam, You'll see industry everywhere and pollution everywhere, but you also see wealth and jobs. Steel was a really grotesque, dirty business when you went to a steel mill in the 19th century. But it created prosperity, created the railroad industry, it created the skyscraper industry, it created car industry. And even to this day, even with all of our environmental protections, I dare say in cities that have steel mills, Pittsburgh's lost theirs. Lackawanna, New York, and Buffalo, New York have lost theirs, but those cities used to be really polluted even with the environmental protection. Now, the trade le legislation is not going anywhere, but my point is that one reason we don't have a level playing field is hypocrisy by the Americans. A second reason is it's almost unenforceable because especially in economic downturns, but even when things are going well, Governments do things for political reasons. So Reagan did protectionist measures inside of his free trade ideology. Bush protected the steel industry, and he got a legal excuse from the World Trade Organization, which you're allowed to do on a temporary basis, for well-politically connected industries, i.e. states that are up for grabs in the Electoral College or in the Senate race. So Ohio, Pennsylvania, Florida, states that go either way, Whatever industries are, or political interests are in those states, those are really powerful tools in Washington, D.C. to get what you want. So the chemical industry in upstate New York got a lot of favors because New York does go, it tends to, New York City goes Democratic, but New York State goes either way. 
New York State used to be really rich in electoral votes. It's still pretty thick in red electoral votes. I don't know, is it fifth largest state now? When I was a kid, it was second after, when I was a kid, it was first. And then California overtook us around 1960. And then Texas overtook, and I think somebody else has overtaken. Who's next? Anyway, New York's got a lot of electoral votes, and New York has a lot of power. Not because it's just the center of so many industries, it's also because New York has a lot of electoral votes. And if you want to win the presidency, and New York is one of the states you got to win as president, you start doing things in your re-election for those states. Watch Obama in the next two years, less, less than two years, in the next year. Look at what states he does favors to. I guarantee you there are states up for grabs for either party. If you're a state that's always going to be Democratic or always going to be Republican, he's going to ignore you. In fact, he'll never campaign there. So economics is tied to politics, and world trade is tied to politics, and every country in the world has some more politically connected industries than others. I read that Facebook spends hardly any money on uh, lobbying. They're just getting into it. Now they're hiring all these high-priced people to start doing lobbying. And Microsoft spends tens of millions of dollars, because Microsoft has been an established business for a long time. But you can see that Facebook is gearing up for a big fight on privacy rules. Because their business is basically based on taking away your privacy. And so are these uh, cell phones. You ever wonder why you might get brain cancer every time you're on your cell phone? And no one's doing anything about it? Sure it does, because they're reading your mind. <laughs> it does. The toxic chemicals in sunscreen do cause cancer. But anyway, um, to conclude, that the important point to remember, the point I want you to get is think about you know, whether globalization on balance has been good, even for Americans, and if so, which Americans? And the same thing with the world economy. And then if you wonder why we have political conflict, a lot of it in the United States and in the world comes from the fact that regardless of whether these poor countries or poor neighborhoods could do anything about it, and if you believe in a class system, you would say you can't. But even if you could, with good policies like India introduced, you're still poor and you're still going to cause conflict if you think it's unjust and you can do anything about it. And that's one of the major reasons why we have terrorism. And on that note, I wish you a happy weekend, and I'll see you next week.